Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. How essential is technology to the success of a business? How can CDOs and CTOs best enable digital transformation in their organizations? Marcus East, Chief Digital Officer at T-Mobile, has been fascinated with technology ever since a teacher provided him with access to a computer when he was eight years old. This led him to work in technology for major brands, including Apple, Google, National Geographic, and now T-Mobile. On this episode, Marcus shares his passion for using technology to transform businesses. Tune in to hear the lessons he's learned throughout his career, his advice for entrepreneurs and CIOs, and more. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm very pleased and honored to have with me today Marcus East, which is the EVP and Chief Digital Officer of T-Mobile. Hello, Marcus. Hello. Thank you for having me. Great seeing you and great uh, having you here in the podcast. I'd like maybe to start, Marcus, with you explaining a bit to our audience, what does it mean, Chief Digital Officer? What What a great question. I get asked this question quite a lot, and I think that different companies define it different ways. I actually have a book that I'm just finishing that talks a lot about this because how does the chief digital officer relate to the chief information officer, relate to the chief technology officer? At T-Mobile, we've taken the decision to split responsibilities using a pretty straightforward paradigm. So our chief information officer is responsible for our systems of record. So he and his team look after our internal network. They look after finance systems, legal systems, HR systems, the things that you would consider to be the systems of record on which you run the business. However, my role as chief digital officer is everything that is considered a system of engagement. So it is all of our frontline systems that are used by our people in retail and care. It's all of the technology in our stores. It is everything that actually powers that as well. So all the way down to our billing platform, which is why uh, we're here today in Tel Aviv. And I think that I see my role of chief digital officer as being responsible for driving the digital transformation of T-Mobile as a company. So that's more than just designing and building experiences. It's also changing the culture. How do we move from being a traditional telco to being one that is digital first? Great. So you did mention the fact that digital is not just about the engagement, it's also about technology. Mm-hmm. So how do you see this interact? Is it, so explain a bit more. 
Yeah, for me, the most important aspect of a digital transformation is the enabling technologies that allow you to bring it to life. Many companies have a great vision. They understand that they would love their customers to be able to do something with them in 10 minutes to transact and to do self-service. But what happens when the customer interacts is really important. And so we in T-Mobile, we understood that all of the enabling technologies that we get from the Amdocs ecosystem, so billing, um, the work we're doing around catalog, work we're doing around commerce, this is how you bring that vision to life. And I think historically, some companies have taken their legacy technology and they've tried to use that to enable their digital transformation. I think we're taking it a step further and that we're acknowledging that in order to be truly digital first, we need to re-engineer everything that we do from the customer experience backwards. And that's what's led us to spend so much time thinking about, okay, how can we leverage all of the great product roadmap that Amdocs has got to support the things that we need to do? So very true. Now, in a recent uh, blog of yours, you also mentioned that you are now a US citizen. Yes, that's um, right. How did the Brit find himself in the US and very <laughs> joyful about becoming a US citizen? Yeah, another good question. So. I, growing up, I mean, I'm very proud of being British, so I had a wonderful idyllic childhood in the UK, but I was exposed to technology pretty young, and I realized by the time I left college after doing my first degree that a lot of the action in technology was in the States. So I found myself from the age of 22 coming to the United States a lot. In 2011, I joined Apple. I was running the e-commerce solutions team for Europe. I was there for about three months, and somebody said to me, hey, you're going to end up in Cupertino because all the good people always go to Cupertino. And I thought that was a very strange comment because there's great talent everywhere. But I was um, then spending a lot of time in the States. And then I was asked back in 2014 to move to America to do the same job that I've been doing um, in Europe to move to a global role um, doing that. And I thought I would be here for a couple of years, but I have now been there for eight years and just became a citizen. So it looks like I'm staying. Yeah, yeah, so, so it seems. You also mentioned of the importance of technology being part of management. Can you explain a bit more about it? Yes, one of the things I've seen throughout my career, which spanned three decades, is that in some organizations, technology isn't necessarily given a seat at the table. And so strategic decisions are being made without really having a deep appreciation or understanding for technology. And sometimes technologists allow themselves to become order takers. Now, this is something I have a strong aversity to. I really do not like that. It's my belief that, as I mentioned earlier, technology is enabling transformation. It's enabling businesses to innovate in a way they couldn't do before. And so for businesses to be successful, they have to make sure that technology is represented at the top table. And you know, many of the organizations that I've worked with over the years, many of the CIOs and CEOs that I've talked to, there's always a little bit of tension. You probably know this, but right now, less than 50% of CIOs report to the CEO. So many CIOs find themselves reporting to the chief financial officer or the chief operating officer. And in that scenario, they will often have a team that is or an organization that becomes a cost center, and they may be a step behind when it comes to driving the transformation. If we think about how we do things at T-Mobile in the US, I'm part of our senior leadership team. It means that our CEO has recognized that digital transformation and the technology that we have to deliver is critical to the future of the organization. 
And I have an opportunity to shape the discussions and the thinking around how do we do promotions? What is the right way for us to manage the operations and the long-term plan for the business? And I think that all technology leaders should aspire to be in that discussion. Otherwise, you can't do your job. Yeah, so very true. You've also mentioned the fact that it's important that the other quote-unquote non-technical leaders Mm -hmm. will understand technology. Why is this so important? Yeah, I think two reasons. On the one hand, the potential for technology to help them is something that they need to appreciate. So if you're a great marketeer, everything that you do has to be driven to some extent by technology, whether it's the data that is informing the decisions that you make or the execution of the promotions that you put in place. And so understanding the potential, I think, is really important. I think that in those most successful organizations, they take it a step further and that there's also an appreciation for how technology gets delivered. And if you're, for example, an HR leader who understands how technology can get delivered, it will enable you to partner much better with your CIO or your CTO to allow you to really deliver for the organization in a way that's not possible if you don't have that appreciation. Got you. Now, let's pause for a second and speak a bit about your history. Mm -hmm. So you've started, you said, at an early age. What drove you into technology? Yeah, I was eight years old growing up in um, North London. North London is a beautiful, leafy place. Like I said, I had an idyllic childhood. And um, my local school, one of the teachers there, Mr. Martin, he bought a computer with his own money. So he bought a ZX81, which was um, made by Sir Clive Sinclair. It was a very underpowered computer, obviously 8-bit, had a, a Z80 processor. It had 1K of RAM, and he put it in the classroom. And he said to three of us who I'm quite sure that most of the people hearing this podcast will never dream that this is how it all started. (laughs) 8-bit, like... uh, 8-bit, yeah, and 1K of RAM. 1K of RAM. Yeah, Yeah. I remember the first time he allowed me to use it, it was a magical experience because, I mean, it looked very innocuous. And then we had to fire the thing up, and he had to load the operating system, and... And then it was just a magical moment when he allowed me to play a computer game called Catacombs. And my brain was trying to understand that how does this little box take all of these numbers and characters and convert them into something? And so at eight years old, he taught me how to program in basic and assembler. And um, a couple of my friends who were also interested, we did that. And my love affair with technology definitely started then. And I do think that without that exposure to technology, who, who knows what I'd be doing today? Yeah. So you grew up, you went into college. Mm-hmm. Um, why computer science? Why not, I don't know, something else? Yeah. So I had many computers um, myself. So my parents bought me a ZX Spectrum shortly after that, which was a little bit better, 16-bit. And then I had Commodore Amigas and Atari STs and PCs. And so by the time I got to college, I was very familiar with technology. I actually worked part-time for a company that was a distributor for computers. And so it gave me an opportunity to play with all of them. So by the time I got to college, I realized that this was the future. Now, my parents were not certain. You know, my dad said, you should probably become a doctor. (laughs) My mother said, become a lawyer. Everybody always needs lawyers. Doctor or lawyer. Yeah, uh, traditional choices. But they understood that there was something special in what I was doing. And I think that one of the things that I was fortunate to experience was this idea that my parents wanted me to follow my passions to some extent. And so by the time I got to college, 
I started studying computing with human factors. So it was part computer science and it was part um, looking at sort of UI, CX and, mm. and how human computer interfaces worked. But an interesting thing happened. As I started that course, I realized that all of the computers that I'd had in my personal life had taught me a lot more than I was learning on these devices at university. So I actually pivoted slightly and I moved towards systems. And I think that was one of the best decisions that I made because I knew how to use computers. I knew how to you know, do programming. But then because I changed to information systems, by the time I graduated, I kind of had both. I had a good understanding of the technology and I had a good understanding of how businesses were starting to use them. And that's when I discovered that my passion was for how you use the technology in business. And I remember one of the papers that I wrote for my undergraduate degree was about the paperless office. Mm. And I talked about how by 2000, we would see no paper in the office. And I had this intellectual exercise looking at all of these things. And it's always fascinated me that we never got there. I mean, you have paper in front of you right now. I use a lot of paper, but it's the potential for technology to change business that has always fired me up, which is why I did that first degree. Beautiful. Now, obviously, we're going to call this uh, episode probably something like how space invaders shaped my future. <laughs> um, I probably use this, uh, you know, the paperless office example several times in my in my lectures as well, <laughs> saying, you know, people said that there will be no no paper. And then uh, you're right. If you need to describe the future of our industry, uh, let's say if you would write the same paper today, mm -hmm. what would you say in five years time? Yeah, I think that CSPs and the Uncarrier have come from a really interesting place. Over the last decade, it has been about that core connectivity, you know, connecting people to their world, which is what we do at T-Mobile. But I think that the concept of connecting people to their world has changed. It used to be speeds and feeds. So when I think back to 2G to 3G, 3G to 4G, 4G to 5G, a lot of that has been debated based on speed and capacity. I think we're now at a point where for many consumers, they're pretty happy with 100 megabits per second or 200 megabits per second. What they're expecting now is more. They're expecting to have a richer relationship with their service providers. So for us at T-Mobile, for example, we like to think about customer problems and then find ways to tackle them. So the most recent Uncarry move that we did was all about how do we allow people to travel easily and not have to have roaming charges and not have to worry about which package do I sign up for? I think over the next five years, we're going to see many organizations trying to focus on finding those customer pain points. So things that I, I believe, there is an incredible opportunity in home automation. The idea that, fine, we're all using our connected devices, but we're using them in the home and we're using them outside the home. For a lot of people, the power that they have from their smartphone, they wonder why the devices in their home are not as controllable and not as configurable. So I think that looking at ways in which we can control smart appliances, ways in which we can control energy consumption within our houses, ways in which we can drive more insights, I think that's going to be really powerful. So that's one area. Another area that I'm really passionate about is e-health. So I wear an Apple Watch and I have membership of a service called Forward Health. Mm -hmm. Now Forward Health is radical. It only exists in two cities in the world, San Francisco and Bellevue. And Forward Health, is a service that has very few staff. You go into the doctor's clinic and there's a machine. You walk onto the machine, the machine weighs you, takes your temperature, 
takes your pulse, does a quick analysis of you. Then you'll go and sit in this wonderful nightclub-like setting, and then a nurse will come and get you, or the doctor will come and get you. Once you sit with the doctor, he has a big screen on the wall, or she has a big screen on the wall, and they have all the information that's been streaming from your Apple Watch to Apple Health, plus anything that the machine in the lobby has taken from you. And if you recently gave a blood sample, they'll bring up all of the results and your doctor will sit there and talk to you about what's happening. Those visits, they take me 10 minutes. In fact, I woke up this morning, had three messages from my doctor. My doctor said to me, hey, looking at your cholesterol and looking at the level of physical activity that you have now, it's lower than it has been um, in terms of physical activity, higher than it has been in terms of cholesterol. Let's keep an eye on that. That's the future. The idea that my doctor can see all of that and interact with me. And so those are just two examples of where I think that companies like ours have the opportunity to take the relationship with consumers into new spaces. And that is incredibly exciting for me. It is exciting, yeah, or frightening. Depends how you look <laughs> at it, yeah. But you're, you're right. Uh, I also had an iWatch, but uh, was confiscated by my wife. So uh... <laughs> Now, you are going back and forth with him in, into the answers, the human factor, and, I, and I'd like to speak with you about how do you gain talent mm -hmm. to join you? Yeah, this is the $64 million question right now, obviously. A bit more with the, with the prices. <laughs> yes, that's right. I would say a couple of things are really important. We're on the west coast of the United States at T-Mobile, so Bellevue is um, just across um, the lake, just across Lake Washington from Seattle. And so we have on our doorstep Amazon, we have Google, we have Facebook, we have Microsoft. I could keep going on. And you just a short flight down the coast to Silicon Valley where all of the major tech companies are. But one of the things that's been really important for us at T-Mobile is that we focus on the total employee experience. I think for those employees that are just focused on maximizing their earning potential, I think for many of, many of those employees, they might find that it is easier to maximize their earning potential going to Silicon Valley, working for one of those big tech companies. But I believe that what we have at T-Mobile is a better overall proposition. We have incredible tenure in our organization. Last week, I was in Overland Park um, in Kansas City. We were celebrating some of our anniversaries. Um, one of our team celebrated 40 years um, with the company. Impressive. And we had four pages of people celebrating uh, anniversaries. And there is something special about a culture where people have been there for a long time. They love their brand they work for. They love the people that they work for, but also there's a company that has values that align with theirs. So we you know, love our customers, but we love our employees. We take care of our employees. We make sure that we support them during difficult times. And many of the employees that I talk to, they understand that what makes T-Mobile special is that environment that we create for them, is the complete employee experience. So that's one thing, I think that's important. Obviously we have competitive salaries and packages, and I think that you, you've got to have that table stakes. But the other thing that I think is important for us is that as we think about talent, we understand that we're also working with individuals who are developing and moving their careers forward. So several of my team have worked with me previously. You know, Melissa, who is our VP of Portfolio Strategy and Operations, Bethany, who is our VP of Product Design and Innovation, both of them reported to me at National Geographic. 
um, Ashley, who recently joined us, was at National Geographic. Then she also joined me at Google. And I do think that as a leader, if you want to be able to build successful teams, you have to create those sorts of connections where people have to trust you enough that, okay, I can maybe earn more money over here, but working with this person is something I like doing. I'm going to do it. And I do think that the COVID era has put such an emphasis on leadership. And I think that one of the things that I notice is that many of the bigger companies actually have much higher attrition than we have in T-Mobile. And I think one of the ways in which we win is because we focus on leadership. We focus on that relationship between leaders and employees, but it's not easy. And I know that you know we'll probably be talking about this for another couple of years because I'm not sure that we will ever return to the pre-COVID mode of working that we had. Yeah, so it seems. Now, I was about to ask one question, but throughout your uh, uh, description, something came into my mind, so I will divert and then come back. So you, you, you mentioned many women in mm-hmm. your team. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a bit about diversity and how important it is in your philosophy and values. Yeah, for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion are incredibly important for a couple of reasons. You know, one of them, which I talked about in the town hall yesterday, is this idea that in the digital space, you're building products and experiences for your customers, and your customers look different. They have different values. You can't just build products for one particular cohort or one particular segment. So I think it's important for the teams that are building those products and designing those products to basically represent the society that you're operating within. So that's the first thing that I would say. So it's just good business. It just makes perfect sense to me. However, one of the things that I have always believed is that you always have to focus on the right talent. So even though I said earlier that there is an element of network that's important when you're hiring and when you're developing people, it's my belief that talent is evenly distributed across all, all of humanity. And so when it comes to me hiring for roles, I've always been very clear. I want the best person, regardless of their background, regardless of their gender, regardless of their orientation. So as an example, I won't mention the company, but when I was working um, in Silicon Valley, I inherited a team that had 100% male engineers, 100%. It was amazing to me. I remember walking into the room and thinking, what, what just happened? I said to my managers, I said, hey, I'm going to ask all of you to make a commitment. I want all of you, the next time you're hiring, to take a step back and make sure that you looked at all of the resumes that came across your desk and that you gave every candidate a fair opportunity. Because I don't see many female candidates coming into the interview pipeline, but I'm pretty certain they are coming in. And there was a little bit of pushback and people said, that's not fair. What are you saying? You know, we don't care about this. But here's the interesting thing. Out of the next 10 hires that we had, six of them were female. And when I talked to one of my leaders in particular, he said it was super interesting because he considers himself to be a feminist. It's always interesting when men talk about being a feminist. And um, he was brought up by a single mother. He has two sisters. He has three daughters himself. And he said that because I consciously said to him, the next time you look at resumes, make sure you're considering everybody. He just took another look and he realized that for whatever reason, some of those female candidates were being excluded. And that changed, and that team became a lot more representative. At T-Mobile, um, we have been very intentional about making sure that we have 
a head office staff that represents our frontline. Our frontline has a very high proportion of people from a Latino background. They would be the largest um, single group, a large proportion of people who identify as black and a large number of females. I want to make sure that in head office, we represent, we, we match that. And so one of the things that we're also doing is looking at ways in which we can create more of a pipeline from the frontline into head office positions. Because typically our frontline come from a different background. A lot of people at head office went to college, had a traditional education. A lot of people in the frontline maybe had a different route into their jobs, but they bring passion, expertise, and knowledge that's really important. The other thing I'll tell you is that um, you know, I grew up in the UK. I grew up in what I consider to be a matriarchy. So, you know, as a child, my mother was very much the head of the household. My parents were born in Jamaica. Women, Jamaican women are pretty tough. She would always um, sort of be in control of the purse strings and would really organize everything. And then our prime minister was Margaret Thatcher, a hero of mine, a lady I had the privilege of meeting, just an incredible leader. And then above her was the queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And so as a 10-year-old British boy, you actually lived in a world where you saw women in positions of authority. Mother, Thatcher, queen. Yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, when I came to the States, one of the things that I realized was that I benefited from being in an environment where I saw the benefits of that equality in leadership. The United States is probably not quite there. We haven't yet had a female president, but maybe that's on the cards. And so for me personally, I wouldn't say it's a mission, but it's something that I think about a lot. And that's why half of my leadership team today is female. And I will tell you that it is not because of a policy around wanting to have 50% female. It is because I've been conscious about hiring the best people for the roles. I couldn't agree more. And you know, it's very funny. You mentioned uh, Jamaican uh, women being so strong because I have many colleagues in, uh, in Ireland and they are saying the same thing about their moms. <laughs> and, and I can vouch about our moms that the same. Mm -hmm. So probably it's uh, something to do with, uh, with gender. Now, I would like to go back into a bit more the technical aspects. You, mm -hmm. You've mentioned in several places that you're also mentoring mm -hmm. startups mm -hmm. and like entrepreneurs in the. So give me like the best three ideas or, you know, comments that you will give a, a, a young entrepreneur. Yes. I always admire young entrepreneurs because I had such a traditional upbringing. My high school was 400 years old. My university was 820 years old. It never really occurred to me I would go and do something myself. I was always going to be on that sort of corporate path. And when I meet some of these young entrepreneurs, I'm just inspired by the vision and the energy that they have. However, as we know, most of them fail because it's very difficult um, to be an entrepreneur. And so three things that I think are really critical. One, you have to be willing to take advice. You have to reach out to people and look, you might be 25 years old. You have a lot of self-belief. You've never failed. But you have to understand that you can benefit from the experience and the knowledge of others. And the most successful startups that I've seen have had a really strong board of directors or network of advisors who have been able to guide them. So that's the first thing I think is really key. I think the second thing I would say is don't allow the technology or the solution to get ahead of the business. I work with a lot of startups that are focused on AI for use cases in healthcare, for example. And some of them 
have been very good at focusing on the business. So yes, they came up with a fantastic idea. Many of them have done PhDs and they have patents and you know, really smart people. But they've understood that the business is to take that concept, that idea, and to create a viable, sustainable business model. Those that I've seen to be less successful tend to over-index on the technology itself and sometimes think more about the product than they do about the business. And I think it's a difficult balance because obviously you need to have a great product. But if you don't have product market fit, then obviously you're going to be in trouble. And so I would always encourage any entrepreneurs, just make sure that you're thinking about both. And then the third piece of advice kind of builds on that second piece of advice. You need a team. You need someone who's maybe thinking more about the technology and the product and somebody who's thinking more about the market and how do you build the organization. You know, I'll use as an example, there is an organization that I advise called OxCan, which stands for Oxford Cancer Analytics. They're led by two incredible entrepreneurs. They both did their PhDs at Oxford University, which is where I met them. One is just an amazing computer scientist. His name's Andreas. He is, you know, world leading when it comes to neural networks. How do you create artificial intelligence in a way that is meaningful and can really drive innovation? And then his partner, Peter, is an incredible doctor. In fact, he once won the award Doctor of the Year in Canada. And he is always thinking about how do you solve problems for patients? Together, they brought his clinical expertise, Peter's clinical expertise, Andreas's technical expertise, and they're an unstoppable team. They have created one of the most accurate and most effective early detection um, solutions for cancer. They're you know, already in, in their second round of fundraising. And the power of having that team is key because they don't always agree. In fact, they often do not agree. Yeah. But the two of them together as co-founders, bringing those different skills is a really powerful combination. The ones that I've seen work not so well is when there is an entrepreneur who is very dominant, doesn't necessarily have a partner that they can lean into, and doesn't necessarily have the advisors because none of us are perfect. It's very easy to make a mistake, to go in the wrong direction. So they're the three things. If I could only pick three, they would be the three. Great. Now, on the other end, you're also, quote unquote, old enough in the corporate uh, ecosystem also to advise new CDOs or new CIOs. What would be the three tips you'll give them? Mm, Yeah, I think it's a different challenge. If you are new into an organization, I think that you have to focus on understanding the culture and building relationships. It's always been interesting to me, and particularly when I was at Google and I spent a lot of time with CIOs, um, I was in the office of the CTO and we worked with a lot of CIOs. We would advise them and tell them how to deal with their most challenging problems. Some CIOs throughout their careers just haven't developed the skill set around real stakeholder management. They might be good technically, they might be good with budget and with process but they don't have that presence around the board table. So I would advise any CIO, CDO, CTO, make sure you build those relationships with your stakeholders because it's a tough job. I did my first CIO job a long time ago. And I remember it was one of the loneliest jobs I ever experienced. I was the CIO for a, a big charity in the UK called Comic Relief. And I was responsible for everything from the laptops that people used when they were out in the field doing research through to 
the office systems through to the donations platform. There are very few people in the organization that will have the same level of skill and experience that you have, but you are so critical to the success of your organization that there'll be times when if you don't have the strong personal relationship with all of your stakeholders, it's going to go wrong. So for me, the CFO has to be one of your best friends in the company because you're probably going to put pressure on budgets, both capital and operating expense. And so make sure you have that relationship. HR, going back to your question about talent, you're probably going to have to flex beyond the normal pay scales for some of the talent that you need to bring in. So make sure you have HR on site. The chief marketing officer, they need to be growing the business. And if you are not contributing to the growth of the business, you can't possibly be successful. So that's the first thing that I would say. I think the second thing that I would say is that it's really important to establish a clear vision. And one of the things that I've seen happen a lot over the last 30 years is that some technologists can be very good at actually developing and managing the technology, but they fail to articulate the vision. And therefore, the rest of the organization doesn't quite understand what's the value that's coming from all of these projects and initiatives. So be clear about the vision. And then the third thing, which might surprise you, is I think that in some respects, the pressure on a CIO or CDO to be an incredible people leader is now even greater than on some other roles in the company. And it's for the reasons that you touched upon earlier. It's such a competitive marketplace for talent that you have to be an incredible leader. You have to attract talent to your organization. People have to want to reach out to you. And that's tough for some tech leaders because naturally uh, many tech leaders are not particularly extroverted. They're not necessarily people that like to go out and communicate, but you have to, to be a good leader for your organization. So there are a few things that I would recommend. Was, was, was this one of the driving forces behind you establishing your own website? Maybe, um, you know, back in 1994, And it was when I joined IBM out of college. Um, in my first few weeks at IBM, it was pretty exciting for me. IBM had just had a few years earlier the biggest corporate loss in history. And people thought IBM was going to go. And they hadn't done any hiring. I was the first hire in the defense team that I joined for nine years. So I came in. It was just incredibly exciting to just be in this, this organization. And... As I was joining, there Funny was... Funny enough, I was the first hire after nine years as well into IBM in Israel. Really? And the first job after college. Isn't that so fascinating? Like, yeah, is, we have something amazing. else we have in yeah, common. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. And uh, one of the people that was retiring as I was joining, he said, oh, if you'd have joined a few years ago, we'd have worked really well. He said, let me tell you something. I'm setting up a new business. He said, I think you should leave IBM immediately. <laughs> And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I am opening something called a cyber cafe. I said, what's a cyber cafe? He said, basically, the future is the information superhighway. And he said, you should come and join me. This is the future. And I was intrigued by this. And I went away and um, did a little bit more research into this idea of internet connectivity, internet service providers, how that model would work. What was interesting about it was that that's when we started to see the first web browsers, as mm. you probably remember. And I was just fascinated with this idea that a university, I'd been using Gopher and systems like Janet, which were text-driven, text-line, um, command-line driven. And then he exposed me to this world of these browsers that were not very good, but they were super interesting. So I actually built my first website in 1994, before many people had even heard of the web. 
And I didn't know why I was doing it other than it, it seemed like this was going to be fun. I can tell you that over the next few years, it was something that I used in my job because part of my job at IBM was helping CIOs and others to learn about the information superhighway, which of course we now refer to as the internet. So I would use it as an example of the possibilities. And I also, I'll be honest with you and say that I then became super interested in the idea that you could use the internet to meet people. Mm. And I'll share a quick story with you. So having created this website, I um, went into various like online chat rooms and so on and so forth. And there was a particular young lady I was chatting to, and it was her first time on the internet, as it was for many people. And we were just talking and talking. And even though we were on other... This is how you met Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> no, uh, no, I wish, I wish. Um, and it was interesting because even though this person was on the other side of the world, it just felt like we should be friends. Like yeah. we, we thought the same way. Anyway, one day I was sitting in my office at IBM. It was 1995 now, towards the end of 1995. And the security guard called me and he said, hey, uh, Mr. East, there is a young lady I'm down here to see you. And I said, I'm not expecting any visitors. And he said, she's come all the way from Israel. And I said, what do you mean? This young lady has come all the way from Israel. She's just told me her name. What do, we, what do you want me to do? I said, let me come down and see her. And it was this lady who I had met on this chat room. And the reason that she'd spoken to me because she'd been on my website. And we'd been talking in this chat room and we'd never talked about meeting. And she just decided to get on a plane and come to London. Wow. And we've been friends ever since. Amazing. And that's the power of the web. And I think the power of the internet to connect people and to be that kind of place, that, that's always something that has inspired me. And her name's Rena. She lives just south of Tel Aviv, actually. She'll be very upset if she hears this because I didn't come to visit her on this trip. <laughs> But... Um, That for me is why having that web presence has always been something that I've considered special. Every year I've updated my website to reflect what it is that I'm doing. Great. You know, I was expecting a different end to the cyber cafe story. You know, you, you've mentioning, and his name was Steve Jobs, and I'm still... <laughs> I wish. If I'd have been born on the West Coast of exactly. the United States, maybe yeah, it would have maybe been a different this cyber, story. Uh, cyber story would uh, go different. <laughs> When you came to T-Mobile, it was kind of your first experiment into the telecommunication industry. It was. So share with me a bit about, you know, how do you take this uh, telco <laughs> industry? Yeah, this is a tough one. I think there's a few things I will say. For most of the organizations that I've worked in, there has been a big emphasis on building software, building experiences for customers. That's been the majority of technology investment has been in that space. What's interesting about the telco space is that, as I've seen it in the time that I've been here, many companies invest the majority of their capital in their network, and there's less attention on building the software and building the experiences. Mm. It's a smaller percentage, of course, of the spend. And I think that's in the DNA of some of the organizations that I've seen. I've been to various conferences and talked to many people and read many books now. And I think that there is an opportunity in this industry to become much more focused on customer experience. One of the reasons that I love the work that our team is doing with Amdocs is that Amdocs brings that sort of global perspective, working with all of the major companies in our industry. Amdocs, like us, wants to build things that are innovative, but also that have a positive impact for customers and for the business. And I think that's an opportunity for us as the young carrier. You know, T-Mobile has a great reputation for putting customers first, for having an incredible frontline. And now... We need to augment that by having an incredible focus on technology. And I think historically, you know, IT 
has been a place where a lot of digital initiatives have been born and have grown. Yeah. So many people were in IT and they were interested in the web, for example, and they started doing things. But I think there's a professionalization of digital in our industry that has been a little bit slower than in travel or finance, for example, or retail. You know, if I think back to the work that I've done in retail, retailers understood pretty early that they needed to be in this digital space, that it was going to be the future. They had to build commerce capabilities. They had to think about changing business models. I think for many companies in the wireless space, they haven't had to do that. And I think we still expect our customers to go to stores. We still expect our customers to call us. And I think COVID is going to accelerate a change in mindset. You know, we now as a company are very focused on becoming truly digital first. It's my belief that the default for our customers should be serving themselves through our app on our website or through whichever device they choose. I also believe that we should be using AI to really help customers tackle some of the problems that today they call us to solve. We should be a lot more predictive. We should be thinking about ways in which the airline industry have done it. So here's a great example. And let's look at the comparison. So if you fly with an airline, let's say, let's pick Alaska. They're my local airline and my favorite. I go to the gate. I haven't talked to anyone. I checked myself in on my app. If I needed to print some labels, I did it at a kiosk. I know exactly where I'm going because the app has been telling me, you're at this gate, gate opens this time, go. I'm at the gate. And then I look at my app and my app tells me the gate has changed. I pick up my bag, I walk to the other gate. Everything is being delivered via digital. I get on the plane, I'm just showing my boarding pass. So many telcos and wireless companies still expect their customers to go to a store to do an upgrade or to go to a store to get a repair. And if Alaska can transport me over the ocean to Tel Aviv without me having to interact with any human beings, why is it that I need to interact with so many human beings just to fix a problem with my wireless account? And so we in T-Mobile are really inspired by the best in digital first companies and brands. And we think that for us, it will be a competitive advantage because we're very serious about making the investments and making the changes, having the partnerships like the partnership that we have with Amdocs to enable us to do that. Yeah, it's kind of shifting the attention or part of the focus, not neglecting the backbone, not neglecting yeah. the core stuff, mm -hmm. but making sure that there is a lot of focus also into the uh, digital journey and everything related to it. Yes. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned also the fact that you worked in Google and Apple and, and other big places. What, what lessons did you bring from there into your T-Mobile role? Mm. I think that if I start with Apple, the absolute focus on customer experience at Apple is a really powerful driver of its performance. One of the things that always surprised me there is that you'd be sitting in a meeting, there'd be a PhD computer science person that has 50 patents, would come up with a fantastic idea Everyone would be like, wow. And then the most junior person in the room would say, but how does that improve the customer experience? And everyone would say, oh yeah, how does it improve the customer experience? It doesn't. Okay, forget that idea. We're not interested in that. And so that absolute obsession with customer experience is something that has, it's always kind of been in me, but I think at Apple is where it really was distilled. And so that's something that I'm hoping to bring into my new role. I think the other thing I would say is if you look at Google, 
one of the most powerful aspects of the culture at Google is experimentation. Now you might say, well, it's primarily a software business, a services business, it's easy, but I actually think it applies to some of their hardware-oriented businesses as well. It's in the culture. Is this idea that you can't just build a business case and then execute a project and have a unicorn business. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be innovation. There has to be some exploration involved. Google does that very well, of course, and they're famous for their moonshots and for their roof shots, et cetera. Bringing some of that to T-Mobile for me has been really interesting and exciting. We've established a new innovation lab and for our digital team where the emphasis is on just getting people to change the culture, to not think about I'm delivering this thing, but to think about how can I take my knowledge and my expertise and innovate and drive something differently. The other thing I would say is that in terms of the skills, I believe that in both Apple and Google, there is an appreciation not only for the skills and the value of software engineers, but also the skills of UX researchers and UX designers and some of the other disciplines that I think sometimes in a traditional IT organization just don't exist or don't have the same emphasis. Mm. And so one of the things that I'm doing right now, working with Bethany, our VP of product design and innovation, is just making sure that we invest sufficiently in product design, in UX, in research, because we have a big machine for delivering software, but we've had a smaller machine for defining the user experience. And I think that's typical in the industry. I want to level that up because it's my belief that the best products always start with an understanding of the people. So Always. very true. So yeah. very true. Now we are almost at the end and still I, w- you know, I have many, many questions, but one, <laughs> one uh, specific area I would like to pick your brain is how do you balance between the many travels and, and, and many business activities that you do in your personal life? Mm. Yeah. I, when I was younger, I probably spent 75% of my time traveling. You know, when I was with an IBM, always traveling. And I think that was necessary at the beginning of my career because you had to work on those big projects. You had to get out there and be visible. What I've realized as I've become older and more senior in my career is that your presence as a leader is pretty important. And so one of the things that I often ask my, my EA to help me with is let's get the balance right in that, yes, there's a thing that I need to go and do over there, but I also need to be there for my people, there for my team. Going back to this idea of leadership, I think that when you're building a high-performance team and you're driving change, it's very important that your people feel your presence. It's not just a hierarchy and a set of instructions and you know, delegating. It really is working alongside people. So as an example, when I was at National Geographic, I traveled a great deal as well. And one of the jokes there was that most initiatives, products, programs started on the whiteboard in my office because the environment and the culture that we built there was that somebody had an idea, they would poke their head in my door and say, hey, can I just test something with you? We'd go onto the whiteboard, we would test it. It's my belief that as a leader, if I'm not able to do that, then my team loses some of the value of my leadership. So being there for my team is probably my number one priority. It's one of the reasons that many of the partners that we have get frustrated with me because they invite me to golf tournaments and to different things. And I say, sorry, I just, that, I'm not going to prioritize that. I've got to be with my people. I think that um, on the flip side, though, travel is important. So this trip here to Tel Aviv to see Amdocs, I mean, it's been amazing for me and for the team. 
it unlocks so much new thinking. Even last night, just talking to some of these smaller startups with the ideas that they have, it's like last night I could hardly sleep because I was thinking about how we could apply some of those to the business. So you do, to your point, you've got to balance. Yes, you've got to be there in the business driving things, but you also have to give yourself space and time to get out. One of the things I learned when I was at Apple is that many Apple leaders will block a day on their calendar and just say, no meetings. I'm going to think, I'm going to the museum, I'm going to read, I'm going to do some coding. Because this idea that you need to create a little bit of space to think is really important. And for me, travel is one of the ways in which I get to do that. Yeah, I hear you. I really enjoy those quiet times while traveling, even though now with all the new, you know, now you can be connected through the flight. <laughs> uh, they don't leave you alone for a second. <laughs> so you also need to tune your iPhone to uh, and your, and your e-health uh, device because everything is going to be different. But I do wish you all the best. Thank you very much for Thank joining you. us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.